I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest has experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. He made history as the youngest solo pilot to fly around the world. In a rented single-engine airplane, Ryan Campbell covered 24,000 nautical miles on 35 stops in 15 countries in just 70 days. And he was recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as the first teenager in history to fly around the world solo. His critically acclaimed book, Born to Fly, that detailed this amazing journey, was nationally celebrated. And Ryan was on top of the world until tragedy struck. At 21, Ryan barely survived a devastating plane crash that changed his life. Broken bones from head to toe, he spent five months in the hospital, followed by 18 months of rehabilitation. Refusing to accept the doctor's paraplegic diagnosis, his fight to fly again fueled his painful yet triumphant recovery. Through his journey from record-setting victory to back-breaking defeat, he developed the mindset required to ride out life's toughest bumps. Ryan's story is one of adventure, adversity, and the toolbox to tackle it all. But before we jump into this episode with Ryan, I wanted to tell you a quick story. Last fall, I was cleaning out my garage and I came across a bunch of old diving shirts that I had. Now, these weren't just regular meat t-shirts. These were fun and funny and several quite fierce. I remember I used to feel more inspired and motivated just wearing them to practice or a meet. It was nothing more than a t-shirt, but to me, it was like I could put on my own little armor of confidence. When I saw these shirts again in my garage, I missed that feeling. So I started creating designs that would inspire and encourage you. Then I opened an online shop called Laura Wilkinson Designs. And now that shop is full of motivational apparel and accessories. And I want to give you inspiration that you can wear on the outside while lifting your confidence on the inside. Go check out the shop, whether it's for you or someone you know that could use a little confidence. From the littlest dreamers to the tough mothers, there is something for everyone. And we even have a special pursuit collection that I created to honor all of our dedicated pursuit peeps like you out there that love this show. Just go to laurawilkinson.com slash shop to check it out. That's laurawilkinson.com slash shop. And finally, if you would like to support this podcast directly, you can buy me a cup of coffee at laurawilkinson.com slash coffee. I love coffee and I'd really appreciate it. That's laurawilkinson.com slash coffee. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. All right, Ryan Campbell, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm so excited to have you on and hear your story today. (laughs) G'day, Laura. Thanks for having me. Well, okay, I know you are in the Guinness Book of World Records. You've got all these things going on, but I first want to know where it started for you. When was your first, I guess, experience on a plane? When did you fall in love with flying? Like, take us back to the beginning. Yeah, gosh, like what an adventure. At the end of the day, like I always say, and I always start off by saying, aviation's given me the very best experiences of my life. And it's also given me the very worst experiences of my life, which is which is a really interesting comparison to now have, especially at, at such a young age. But it all started back when I was six years old. I jumped on an airplane in Sydney, Australia, as you can tell. As much as I try and convince people I'm from West Texas, uh, I am actually (laughs) from Australia. But uh, way back when I was six years old, jumped on an airplane in Sydney, Australia with my mum, my dad, my two brothers, like normal Aussie family. Dad was a farmer, a truck driver. Uh, Mum was a stay-at-home mum. So we jumped on this airplane to go on what was actually the very first overseas trip for any of us, including my parents, to an island in the Pacific Ocean called Vanuatu. So we jumped on a a Boeing 737 and that was it. That was the day. Everything about that day was just mind-blowing. Just the sights, the sounds, the feelings, taxiing to the runway and seeing all the other airplanes and being kicked back in the seat on takeoff and you know the rumbling of the airplane on the runway as it sped up and you know just climbing over Sydney and flying through the clouds and it was actually believe it or not right before September 11 so we were actually invited to go up and visit the cockpit as three young boys and I tell you what that's pretty incredible eyes wide uh, amazed at the buttons and switches 
super stoked to meet the pilots. I thought they were the coolest people that ever walked the earth. And uh, that was it. That was the day that uh, six-year-old Ryan discovered his passion and that would be all things aviation. Well, so where do you go from there? Like you fell in love with it, but you're a kid, you're still in school doing all that. Like how, how did this kind of grow and blossom into something or did it not really come back up for several years? It never went away. Like that want to be a pilot never went away, but it's kind of hard because how do you, how do you start that process of, of, you know, pursuing anything that we want to do in life? And, and really all you can do is use the knowledge you have, you know, common sense to put a plan together. And, and that's what I did. I was 14 years old. Uh, little did I know I had family in aviation around me, but we hadn't connected at that point in time. But I used what I thought was common sense. And I thought, you know what? I'm 14 years old and we're starting to talk at school about what we're going to do for a career and how we're going to make that happen. And common sense would tell me that I need to to have money in order to learn to fly an airplane. And I definitely have to have a driver's license, right? They're not going to let me fly a plane before I can drive a car. And so I started a plan. So I'm going to leave school, uh, finish my uh, high school kind of education. I'll get a job and I'll fund my flying lessons and I'll get my pilot's license, uh, eventually dreaming to become an airline pilot. And that was my common sense plan, what I thought was common sense. But one day when I was 14 years old, I was flicking through the local newspaper at my mum and dad's kitchen table. And I come across an article about this young kid who'd flown an airplane on his own, so solo, the very first time ever. On the day he turned 15, 15 years old, this kid's flying an airplane on his own. And I was jealous. Like I was envious. <laughs> I couldn't believe this was legal. It just blew my mind. And uh, I was so jealous. I kept reading that article over and over again. But every time I would get to his name, I'd replace it with my name. That's how jealous I was, right? Okay. I love that. I love that. There's, I think there's some really like good value in that. <laughs> yeah. I just like, I wanted it. I wanted it so bad. So I took that kind of like, if he can do it, why can't I approach? Uh, I went and did the research, went to the airport. I found an after-school job. I found a weekend job and I saved up my money. And every two weeks, I would take a one-hour flying lesson. And that was my whole life revolved around aviation from that point on. And the day that I turned 15, I went to the airport. I practiced some takeoff and landings with my flying instructor. And then he told me to take him back to the hangar, not to shut the airplane down. He got out of that airplane did up his seatbelts. He took his headset. He said, uh, don't forget to lock the door, go and have fun. And I went out there at 15 years old, much to everyone's excitement, except my poor old mom uh, who was having a heart attack. <laughs> and I went out to that runway and I pushed a throttle in on my 15th birthday and I took off and ultimately achieved my first really big goal and dream in life. And I was a 15-year-old kid. Were you, were you scared at all or were you just totally so excited it didn't matter? Uh, yeah, I th you're definitely not. I mean, there's some excitement, but it really is nerves. And I think everyone says, regardless of age, that day that you fly on your own for the very first time, you can take off by all means and, and get up there in the sky. But you look across and see where that flying instructor normally sits. And that's when you realize that you are up there on your own. And getting back down is, is completely 100% going to be up to you at this point. So incredible. I mean, the next week I went and read the local newspaper and there was an article uh, about a young kid who flew solo on his 15th birthday. But as I say to everyone, this time I didn't have to change a name. And it was just this kind of like cool little circle of like, I saw something I wanted. I started to kind of research how to do it. I put a plan in place. I worked really, really hard. I gave up on a bunch of stuff to be able to make it happen. And ultimately found success in that. And that was a pretty powerful lesson to, to have when you were 15. Uh, I, I'd say so. And I, I think this day and age, sometimes kids forget about the work part of it. You know, they, they just think I want to do this thing. Well, how come nobody's showing me how, or nobody's doing this for me or presenting me like you, you went and did the work, you, you did the legwork, you figured it out. Like there's, you know, we, we got to DIY things. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got to do <laughs> a lot yourself. And I, I think sometimes kids these days, forget that, you know, or aren't being taught that as much as maybe, maybe because the internet is just there and people assume they can figure it out, but like, you still have to make that effort to like hunt down the information and figure out how to do it. And I, I, I love that. It's just, you're a good self-starter that way. So, so where do you go from here? You did, you did this big goal that you had, you, you got your name in the paper instead of somebody else's like, okay, what now? <laughs> well, I was still a 15 year old kid. So I just kind of kept going to school 
and all he ever wanted to do was leave school and, and fly full time. And uh, when I was 16 years old, I was allowed to take passengers flying in the airplane, but I wasn't old enough to drive a car on my own yet. So uh, <laughs> I, I cut a deal with all my schoolmates and I was like, all right. I said, if you'll drive me from school to the airport, I'll take you flying, but you got to drop me home afterwards. And that's exactly <laughs> what we did. So we went on some wild adventures in our school uniforms, flying around in the airplane. I graduated to a better job. I went from working at a supermarket to working uh, as a, I was uh, an underwater ceramic technician is what I would tell people. I washed dishes at a restaurant. (laughs) I was paid really, really well to do it. And uh, that allowed me to fly a bit more and continue my license. So 17 years old, I'm a private pilot, 18 years old, I'm a commercial pilot, graduated high school, ready to take on the world. But as you know, there's, you know, 17 years old, I had an idea and that idea would ultimately go on to to change my whole life. And that idea was uh, after reading another article in a newspaper, I probably should start reading articles. uh, (laughs) I discovered that the world record for the youngest person to have ever flown a single engine airplane solo around the world had been broken by an American man. He was 23 years old. The record prior to his attempt was 37. So really this wasn't something that had been done by, by young people. And here I was, 17 years old, not real good at mathematics, uh, mathematics, skipped way too many classes, but still smart enough to realize that there were six years to pull off this record if I wanted to attempt it. And that's when the real wild uh, adventure began. Well, how do you start mapping that out? Because that is, I mean, to travel around the world, like that's such a big thing. Like, how do you even begin to I guess, grasp what you need to do and how that works. Did somebody help you with that? Or again, did you just kind of figure out a plan on your own? No, I think like I often say that I think the two years of planning, fundraising, training, preparing, like we fundraised a quarter of a million dollars. We built a team from nothing all the way through to something that was followed by thousands of people. Wait, wait, wait. Back up here. How does a 17-year-old start raising a quarter million dollars? Like how how do you even go about doing that? (laughs) Well, I would say that that just that process alone of doing that, first off, I am just as proud, if not more proud of than the actual flight itself, because this is where the lessons are of how to get something quite literally, excuse a pun, off the ground and how to take an idea in your head and turn it into a process that results in an outcome. And, you know, I was 17 years old. I wanted nothing more than to fly a plane solo around the world. I mean, what else could you do in a single engine airplane over and above that? And I wanted to do something that had never been done before. Well, I did what any wannabe teenage adventurer these days should do, right? And this is back in 2011, 2012. I went to Google and I Googled how to fly solo around the world, right? Legitimate Google search. (laughs) And I found a website, I printed off all the information and I highlighted all the important parts and I hid that paperwork in my school desk because I didn't want my mom, my dad, or any of my brothers, my family to find out. I didn't want them to know that I was even Googling it. I did not want them to think that I could actually, you know, believe that I could pull this off basically. And I found the information uh, very interesting, but there wasn't a lot to read. To give context at this point in history, more people have been to space and flown solo around the world. So like we're talking about something that really hasn't been done. That's crazy. Yeah. It's pretty wild when you think of it that way, but I decided after I'd Googled all there was to Google that I needed to speak to someone who could move the needle, but also knew what I was trying to get myself into. And I actually ended up contacting a very famous Australian man. He's a household name. Uh, He's a businessman, a politician, an entrepreneur, but he's also a round-the-world pilot, first person in history to fly a helicopter solo around the world. And I mean, what do you do as a 17-year-old kid? How do you contact someone who's such a, a household name? Well, this gentleman's name was Dick Smith. I Googled Dick Smith's email address, right? The power of the internet's an incredible thing. Of course you did. Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) And I found five email addresses and I emailed him. And not only did he respond, but he set me a bit of a goal. And that was to find a mentor. If I could find a mentor, he would uh, support me and jump on my team. So I went and I found a mentor. Uh, At this point, I had a team of three, but I hadn't asked my parents yet. So I had the awkward conversation with my parents, uh, sat down with them, showed them all the emails. And that is a story in itself. We could talk all day about this stuff, but I built a team of five. That team of five expanded over the next two years. And and we really did. We, we took a laptop computer and we started writing proposals to some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, absolutely obliterating copyright laws, taking you know logos off Google and doing all this stuff that you shouldn't do. But I had no idea. So at that point, it wasn't about precision. It was just about 
progress, doing something. And we refined the process of networking and and getting the word out there and slowly and surely people started to jump on board. And, and when we partnered up with 60 Minutes and some different media outlets, now we started to get a bit more traction in the sponsorship front. And at the same time, we're not only trying to fundraise a quarter of a million dollars, but I am still an 18-year-old kid who is telling the world that at 19, I'll go and fly around it. And it was up to me to be ready to do that. So I'm training as a pilot and preparing, as you would know, trying to like nail that craft because at the end of the day, a 19-year-old kid flying around the world needs a certain amount of experience. And I wasn't going to get that organically by flying for my whole life. I had to get that kind of secondhand, uh, which is never quite as powerful, but I had to pull that wisdom from those who'd done a lot of ferry flying and long distance flying in small aircraft around the world. And that's what we worked on for that two years. Even finding an airplane was complicated. I often tell people, I don't know if you've ever tried to rent a car at an airport under the age of 25, it's very, very hard. Under the age of 21, it's borderline impossible, right? But trying to rent a million dollar single engine airplane at 17, 18, 19 to fly it around the world was an incredibly tough sell. And it was a journey that took us to the other side of the world here to the US to knock on the door of aircraft manufacturers. And that in itself was a challenge. So that two years without going too deep into it was just a roller coaster ride in itself of ups and downs and hard days and great successful kind of you know days filled with celebration. And it was just a just to get to that starting line was tough. Gosh, that's just so relatable. Like I, I get that because it's, you know, the world sometimes sees these amazing feats, you going around the world, people like me at the Olympics, wh- whatever it is, they see these feats, but they have no idea how you even got to the starting line. I think that's so huge because I that's, you know, 99% of it is just getting to that moment to have a shot, right? And even doing this thing. What's the farthest you had flown before you made this attempt across the world? <laughs> <laughs> Not real far. Uh, most airplanes run out of fuel in like four or five hours, right? These small airplanes. We took an airplane that we rented and we modified it and we placed 160 gallons of fuel in a bag inside the cockpit. In a bag? In a bag. So it was a big bladder tank. It was literally a bag of fuel. Uh, we had 250 gallons of fuel in the airplane. Now we could fly 17 hours nonstop. But we weren't able to to test that due to government and aviation regulations. It was really limited what we could do with that airplane in that configuration. So I'd done a little bit of flying long distances, but really three or four hours was about the max. And I had never really flown over any bodies of water. Whereas when I departed on this trip, uh, June 30, 2013, I pointed the airplane over water and I flew over water for the first time. That body of water happened to be the Pacific Ocean. Oh my goodness. So if you're going to do it, you may as well do it well. And (laughs) the first real big chunk of unmissable land was North America. So we had uh, really short legs. The shortest actually was 20 minutes as we maneuvered and relocated into an air show in Wisconsin. But the longest leg from Hawaii to California was 15 hours nonstop in a single engine airplane. So it was a really steep learning curve very quickly, straight out the gate. Oh my goodness. So, I mean, how scared were you going into that? I mean, doing things you'd never really done before (laughs) to try to make this work. Like, do you have like radio communication as well? Like, how does that work in a small plane? I I don't know any of the logistics of this. You really are like, you're doing something in an airplane that's not designed for that task. And the extra fuel allowed us to fly long distances, but that had to be pumped every 30 minutes through a bunch of fuel lines that were external to the wing uh, into a different fuel tank. We had pumps, hand pumps, electric pumps. We had ditch bags. We had a life raft that we named Bob. Uh, (laughs) We had uh, a long distance HF radio communication system, which was absolutely terrible, but it gave us some chance of talking to air traffic control when we're in the middle of nowhere. At the end of the day, airliners fly around it, you know, in the thirties, really high up uh, in the, the flight levels. Whereas this airplane could not do that. We're flying around at 9,000 feet right down low. So we didn't have accurate weather at that level. We didn't have accurate winds. We didn't have great communication. So it really did put you out in the middle of nowhere. And I mean, at one point between Hawaii and California, we're a thousand miles from any land, any body in any direction uh, in a single engine airplane. This airplane was piston powered with one propeller. It was the Cirrus SR-22 for the aviation guys and gals out there. And here we were flying at 24,000 nautical miles around the world. We went to 35 stops, 15 countries, 180 hours in the air, all the way from 
down under, you could say, in Sydney, all the way up to Iceland at the top of the world and then all the way back down the other side. So we were pushing this machine and definitely a 19-year-old kid to the limits, you could say. Well, yeah. And so this was through 15 countries, 35 stops, 70 days, like you said, about 200 hours in the air. Like how mentally did you stay in check? I mean, were there, were there times where you just got like, what am I doing? I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm terrified. Or were you pretty (laughs) confident or were you just trying to distract yourself? Like, how did you keep your crap together (laughs) during this? Honestly, like, no, I was not confident in any way, shape or form. I knew we, I was confident in our planning but planning is not a substitute for execution, you don't like or experience. I probably should say. So it, you know, you had to kind of get out there and and that old saying of you you start life with a, a full bag of uh, luck and an empty bag of experience, and the aim of the game is to kind of you know fill up the bag of experience before you empty the bag of luck. And there was definitely a component of that in this trip. But at the end of the day, we had to take. 24,000 miles and split it up into not just legs, but little tasks. So this wasn't a 24,000 mile flight around the world. This was 35 A to B flights that happened to connect the dots around the globe. But then every single flight was broken down into jobs. So in order to stay awake, we had uh, a task set every 15 minutes. So all the way around the world, every 15 minutes, I'm either contacting air traffic control, I'm I'm writing down temps and pressures and different kind of data and, and, and everything from the airplane to monitor the trends of the, the aircraft, or I am transferring fuel or you know so on and so forth. So always something to do to make sure that every 15 minutes we're doing something that takes five minutes, we have 10 minutes off and we start the process again and, and really kind of sitting down and saying like, this is a one step at a time. Like you would think that there's some kind of crazy golden nugget to how to do something like this. But as you know, there's not, it, it's basic, simple goal setting. You know, we knew what we wanted to do over the space of 70 days, but we were more interested in, in what we had to do over the next 12 or 24 hours. And, and we just took it one step at a time. Uh, I, I love that. I love that one step at a time. I mean, that's that's how you keep going. It's those small, consistent little chunks over time that really, really add up to the big goals. I, I do love that. So what was it like finally touching down, knowing you just did it? You did this incredible world record-breaking feat. Like, what was that feeling? Yeah, I, I think I was just glad to be home. You know, we went all the way across the Pacific, all the way across North America, up over the North Atlantic to Iceland, to Scotland, England, France, Greece. We diverted around Egypt because of a crisis. We ended up around Iraqi airspace, over the Red Sea, into Jordan. We flew nine hours across Saudi Arabia. We were in Oman, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Indonesia. Like we had traversed kind of the whole globe and we'd seen everything from icebergs to lava flowing into the ocean uh, at the Hawaiian Islands we'd seen. 60,000 foot thunderstorms that we had to divert around. We had icing issues over the North Atlantic. So ice sticking to the airplane and all these kind of moments of boredom and moments of sheer terror and pleasure and immense regret and all that good stuff. And (laughs) so long story short, to get back there and to see that same runway that we hadn't seen in 24,000 miles was just a, it was just a dream come true. Honestly, it was, I was so glad that this was going to be over because I'd realized pretty quickly as selfish as adventure is it drags a lot of other people in with it. So, you know, the the positive or negative outcome of this trip really did affect a lot of other people. So, you know, I wanted it to end and end well. And we did just that. We landed, we celebrated. It was just super cool. You know, we'd, we'd created history and broken a record, sure, but that really didn't matter. And we started to learn pretty quickly that it didn't matter. My mum was the one who forced me to submit the Guinness Book of World Record paperwork, which I'm glad you did because mums are always right. But... Yes, they are, just for all of those listening. <laughs> <laughs> what really mattered was the impact we had on so many different people, from six-year-old kids all the way through to World War II ex-fighter pilots, you know, and they were writing handwritten letters. Everyone had followed this journey and pulled something else uh, from it. And it was so heartwarming to see the reaction, to see the reaction from the book, uh, to see the reaction from 60 Minutes and the Today Show and any of the media that went out there around the world we'd made a difference in a way, which I think was just so incredibly powerful. That's so cool. Um, knowing that that something you did and the goal you had affects people that way. But I, I do want to touch on something you mentioned with the pressure, because a lot of people were in this with you, for you. And so the success or failure really felt like, it sounds like, was right squarely on your shoulders. Like, How did you 
deal with that pressure or did you deal with that pressure? <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely dealt with it okay because we made it back home. But you really just have to go back to the absolute basics, which is, you know, this is one step at a time. There is no way that I was going to give up. Uh, you know, so the only way that I was going to get home, when I started to struggle throughout about Greece onwards, which was a still a good kind of like 30%, 40% of the flight left or more, and through the hardest part of the whole wide world, right? We had $10,000 of bribery cash hidden in that airplane just for the bad countries around the world. Like this is not your normal A to B flight in an airliner. This is not at all. It's so, so different. And um, I really wanted to get home, but I knew the only way that I was getting home was going to be in that airplane. I was not getting, you know, on a Qantas flight with a drinks trolley as much as I wanted to and flying home, you know, drinking airplane bottles of, of Tennessee whiskey. But <laughs> I had to get that airplane home. And that's exactly what we did. We, we took it day by day. We problem solved along the way and through that proved to ourselves what we were capable of, of undertaking, I suppose. I love how real you're being about this. I, I do appreciate the, the honesty there because I think sometimes when we tell these amazing stories, people just, they think it's easy. They think it comes natural that you don't have the same fears or nerves or pressure, but you do. And so I, I just think it's great to, to touch on that for athletes listening or coaches listening. Um, so what is what is life like? You, you realize that you've done this great thing. You're impacting people. You're making a difference you know, but you're still 19 years old. Like, do you just go get a job after that? Or what, what are the next steps? It was kind of hard because I think, and you could probably relate and talk about this a lot is, you know, I was told, uh, kind of referred to this feeling as like athletes drop, you know, like you, you live this life that's incredible and, and every day is an adventure where you're getting up and your life's in your hands and all of that kind of stuff, you know, and all of a sudden it ended and I woke up the next day and instead of, waking up and having breakfast with my parents and my my family and telling them all about what had happened. I went back to the airport because in my head, I, I couldn't quite work out like what was I meant to do next. And it was actually very hard. And I think, you know, it was writing the book and kind of writing out that wave afterwards that helped me a little bit. And we had, I mean, it was an incredible life. I was on the Australian speaking circuit. I uh, met incredible people. I shook Buzz Aldrin's hand. I mean, as a pilot, as a young aviation lover, you know, to meet the man who walked on the moon is is about as good as it gets. And I was invited to meet the Royals. And, you know, you're standing there as a normal kid talking to Prince William about aviation and adventure. And that's when you realize that your life has taken such a wild turn. But in the keynotes, we tell this story of meeting Prince William and, and how incredible that is. And we show a photo that everyone goes, oh, wow, that's cool. But then I make it known that that photo has a hidden meaning to me. And it is a reminder that I always will be, regardless of what happens, good or bad, a normal Aussie kid. Because whilst I was at that event, meeting Prince William, having a great conversation with him, they were bringing around all of this food. And it was very fancy food on silver platters, right? It was a very formal event. And all of this food was not what a normal... 19-year-old uh, Aussie kid would want to eat, right? It was green. It was either uh, <laughs> <laughs> undercooked or not cooked at all, right? This is the type of caviar-based stuff that you as a mum are laughing, but this is the type of stuff that I didn't want to touch. So I actually left that event having met the Royals in my brand new suit and I drove my car to KFC and I sat at KFC <laughs> and I ate fried chicken, right? So I was still this normal kid at heart and that's what really mattered. So I kind of rode out that wave, but at the same time, I just wanted to go and fly. I was a pilot. I wanted to be an airline pilot. I was offered a job with the airlines, but I actually turned it down. Uh, it was actually with my dream airline with Qantas. And I thought, you know, I'll become an airline pilot in a few years. But for now, I want to pursue flying more kind of real airplanes. I want to go and fly warbirds and, and all of that good stuff. That led me to a job flying a vintage airplane built in the 1930s. And this was two years after the end of the round the world flight. And I'm flying this airplane up and down the coast of Australia and doing some aerobatics and, and taking people on rides. It was a two-seat airplane. Life was pretty good. It was a beautiful airplane. I lived in a great part of the world and, and I was happy. On the 28th of December, 2015, I was at work on a normal day and I had a gentleman in the airplane with me. We took off. And out of a short grass airstrip, the end of the runway went beneath the nose of the airplane and the engine failed and we lost power. And we're at a low level off the end of the runway in the next three seconds, doing everything that I possibly could in my experience. It wasn't enough. And what resulted was a horrific, horrific plane crash to the point 
where they found me and they cut me out of that wreckage and they took me to hospital as the only survivor. It's brutal. I mean, I, I did this at a keynote just last week. This is what I do for a living, but it doesn't matter how many times you go through that or talk about it. It's always incredibly tough. So the reality was that my entire life had changed the very thing that had given me my identity and made me who I, who I was at that point in time was now the very thing that had taken it all away. And at this point, I'm just shy of turning 22 years old. Like I'm, a, I'm still a young guy and it was tough. I had five breaks in my back. I had uh, shattered facial bones. I had a shattered, almost removed right ankle. I was broken from head to toe and I was taken to hospital. I was operated on uh, all night. I was placed in a recovery ward and I woke up sometime later, but in the accident, I had damaged my spinal cord. I had a spinal cord injury, which resulted in paralysis from L1 down. And I was diagnosed uh, by the doctors as a complete paraplegic. So I just can't explain what that was like. I was in hospital for six months. I was in a full-time rehabilitation ward. I was in rehabilitation full-time for, for a year and a half. And I was faced with a physical challenge for sure, uh, you know, trying to get back onto my feet and, and find my way back to the cockpit and all that stuff that I wanted to do for sure. But what I was really faced with was a mental challenge. And it was not just the mental challenge of, of learning to walk again, but it was a mental challenge of trying to come to terms with what had happened on that day and uh, everything that kind of that involved. And I'd been to the top and even though I couldn't see it then, I look at this as my biggest gift, I had now been to the bottom and the opportunity to compare those two, uh, to ask ourselves a couple of really important questions, where do we truly learn what makes us the very best version of ourselves? They are the powerful questions that I had now, the real life experiences to to pull apart and and find myself and and now the audiences that we speak to to find an answer that could create some impact and transformation and change you know within the lives of others. And so, at what point do you actually grasp what's happening? And I mean, I I can't even imagine so many things. I mean, do you do you remember the crash? Do you remember? My, or is it all kind of a blur and blocked out or like what, I guess, what did you walk away with mentally and emotionally at that point? Yeah, I, I remember it. And basically all of it, nearly all of it. And I mean, you know, you have this challenge of trying to look at what happened on the day. And, and the only way that I could have ever and have moved forward is to know that what I did on the day was the very best that I could do. And you could put me back in that position. I just don't know what I would have ever done differently. And you can start to play the games of why didn't I just call in sick or why didn't I take the job with the airline or why did I like the, you can play the why dids game, but that gets you absolutely nowhere. You know, you have to be so strong. And this is where our turbulence tough brand comes from is saying like, you know, you can live an easy life for sure, but you have to understand that for basically every single one of us, you know, we all experience adversity of differing levels. Adversity is a byproduct of breathing and, and turbulence is a part of life. And it comes down at the end of the day to how tough and resilient you are and how willing you are to tackle the mountain that's ahead and then get up every single time you're knocked down. And it comes back to understanding that resilience is a learned and refined skill. It's not something that we're, we're given. And, and you know this, you know, you don't have to be in a plane crash, you don't have to have a spinal cord injury to have a bad day. I mean, we all have bad days. A five-year-old kid who falls over and grazes his knee at school is like, that's bad in his world. Yeah, that's tough. So adversity is not a competition. What matters more than anything is are we dedicating the time and the effort to uh, building a, a and strengthening a foundation of resilience that allows us to tackle the, the, the turbulence that, that's just a part of, of living. Which I love that. I mean, that's so beautifully, beautifully said. But how long did it take you to get to that point to realize those things to to be able to move forward in that way? Yeah, it's a really clear cut line, to be honest. And uh, it was one moment in the hospital, and up until this moment, like I was just not in a good place. I just wasn't. And like we could dive into that in detail, but it's just depressing. But the reality is that I just wasn't doing real well. So. 
it was the very first time they actually had ever placed me in a wheelchair and taken me to the rehabilitation gym. Now, the gym was in the hospital. We lived in a hospital ward that was our home for almost six months. We ate, we lived, we slept, we worked right there in the hospital. And they took me down to the rehabilitation gym. Now, this was a place where paraplegics and quadriplegics were doing everything they possibly could to bring their body back to life. And it was at that time that I met my physiotherapist. They took me out of the wheelchair, laid me onto the bed, uh, and they said, all right, your first challenge in the gym is learning to roll over. So we're going to lay you on your back and you have to somehow get to your stomach. And even though this wasn't a challenge that I thought I would ever have to face, this was a challenge nonetheless. And I wasn't one to really want to shy away from it. So I come up with a plan in my head and I thought if I could just lift up one of my kind of chunky lifeless legs and I could place it over the other one, I'd twist the bottom half of my body and then I could reach over, grab the side of the bed and pull with my arms. I would untwist the top half and I would end up you know, victorious and, and lying on my stomach. So that's exactly what I did. As I pulled on the side of that bed, I had five breaks in my back. I had a bunch of metal in my back and the pain was just like unexplainable. You could have stabbed me in the side of the the hip with a knife and it wouldn't have changed the feeling that I had at that point in time. So I stopped on that bed on my side, on my left-hand side, and I just lay there and I just kind of let the pain dissipate. And all these people are looking at me, uh, my mom, my dad, other patients, parents, other patients there and nurses and physiotherapists. And I remember making a joke about looking like a fish out of water. Like I was trying to lighten the mood. This was a terrible place to be. It was very somber. But I remember looking up through my right arm and it was all twisted and I could see kind of like a small gap underneath my elbow. It created this little kind of hole. And when I looked through that hole, I saw something or someone, to be honest, that changed my entire life. I saw a really young guy in a really big wheelchair. Uh, His name was Ben. He was in his early 30s. When he was mopping his girlfriend's floor, he fell over, he slipped, he hit his head, he broke his neck. No movement or feeling below his chest down, very little movement or feeling in his arms and his hands. He was a quadriplegic. And Ben was sitting in this wheelchair with uh, elastic bands around his wrists strapped to the side of that chair and he's moving his arms in and out like an inch at a time. That was what Ben could do, right? They, They were his exercises. Here I was lying on this bed feeling like my world was over. I was angry that I couldn't fly. I was sad that I couldn't walk. I was upset about all this stuff, let alone the fact that my body didn't work. I couldn't go to the bathroom like a normal person. Like There were so many problems at this point in time. Uh, I was so angry at the world. But when I looked up at Ben without saying a single word to each other, I realized in that moment what he would have given for one chance to be me. And like, you think that like, it's always tough to even tell this story because it's that realization that he would give anything to, to have one chance at learning to roll over that makes you realize how lucky you were. And in reality, the fact that you shouldn't really be thinking the way that you were. And I mean, I never said anything to Ben at all that day. They put me in the wheelchair. They took me back to the ward and I laid in that bed and my body was resting, but all night my my mind is racing at a million miles an hour. And I knew it was how I felt in that moment with Ben that I had to remember that was that feeling, that that feeling was what was going to get me through this, right? Like that's what was going to get me through the hard days. And there were plenty of hard days on the horizon. I couldn't quite explain how I felt with Ben, to be honest, but I knew I had to to remember that feeling and not forget it. That night, I came up with a bit of an idea in my head called the Mindset Toolbox. It was really simple and elementary, to be honest. Every day in hospital, I could go to the gym and I could move a muscle and I could build strength and I could see progress. That progress is what gave purpose to the pain, right? It's what made me get up the next day, get back in the wheelchair, go back to that rehabilitation gym. But the mental side of life, tracking growth above your shoulders, which is where I believe life is won and lost, was really borderline impossible for me to track, right? I could go and and work on it every single day, but I just could not. I always had these lull moments. I couldn't work it out. I I couldn't see progress like I could physically. Well, that night I come up with the mindset toolbox and it was just this really basic concept to say, all right, Ryan, every single one of us is born with a toolbox. It's really big. It has drawers and wheels. We take it with us wherever we go in life. Now, the aim of the game is to fill that uh, toolbox with tools, tools that we can use to navigate change, challenge, crisis, and adversity, right? To make us turbulence tough. The way that we find those tools is we take moments in time, like those ones 
in a rehabilitation gym, that one with Ben uh, specifically, or, you know, going to the Olympics or flying around the world uh, or having just a conversation with your grandma or something that happens at school. And we pull apart those moments. We unpack them. So we actually dedicate time and space to sit down and go, all right, at the surface level, Ben taught me perspective, but what are the actual other lessons that are hidden beneath that? And as cool as the toolbox was, and as great as that is, it might work for you, it might not. That's just how my you know, 21-year-old man brain who like building things happened to work. <laughs> the real lesson in this was the process of unpacking a moment in time is actually what allowed us to truly learn, to slow down in the turbulence, to hover within it, to give ourselves the time to analyze, to extract, to store, and to pull out these incredible tools. Now, just there that night lying in bed, I realized a bunch of things that Ben had taught me over and above perspective. And that was that I needed to focus on what I had left from my waist up as opposed to what I'd lost. And I needed to focus on uh, and, and specifically have gratitude in my ability to adapt. So, you know, to find new ways to do old things, right? Ben didn't have that ability in him for the most part. He couldn't try and roll over no matter how hard he wanted it. At the end of the day, unpacking that moment in time and placing those tools in the toolbox. So we're taking easily forgettable moments, we're placing them in an unforgettable drawer. That process taught me and Ben taught me that I was in fact lucky to be a paraplegic. That is a brutal lesson that I never thought you would ever have to learn. And that toolbox is what changed my mindset to say, okay, well, this isn't about learning to walk anymore. This isn't about learning to fly. This is about filling the toolbox, which is another way of saying building and strengthening your foundation of resilience. I am going to make myself tough. I am going to therefore operate at my maximum potential every day. And then what comes from that is the very best that will or can come. And that was it. I saw every day as uh, an opportunity to fill the toolbox. I wanted nothing more than to learn from the people in the world around me. And and I just wanted to to be better. And, and that process allowed me over six months, along with a lot of luck and, and how I damaged my spinal cord and so, so on and so forth, to start to see some function regain to find my way back to standing for a couple of seconds to standing for a minute to shuffling with physiotherapists moving my feet for me to graduating to large walking frames to being discharged from hospital you know in the wheelchair but getting ready to kind of look towards crutches and then finding myself over time on crutches and then eventually to this kind of strut that I have going on now which I tell people I look like I've had a few too many Tennessee whiskeys but I'm now walking independently and shuffling around kind of, you know, getting where I want uh, on my own two feet. The way that we arrived at that point was by kind of making a pact and understanding that no one was going to give me, you know, a great outcome. I had to work for it. And, you know, there was no shortcuts. I needed to toughen up, become turbulence tough and work every day to, to find myself, you know, at the place that I wanted to be at. Uh, that's absolutely incredible. Um, thank you for sharing that. I know that's probably not easy to dig into those feelings sometimes and going back there, but I mean, obviously like, you know, you, you impact so many people when you do that and we're very appreciative of your vulnerability. So thank you. Um, how long did it take you to kind of get from those first days back to where you're walking of your own accord? We did a year and a half total in rehab and the end of that rehab started to see us push back into, you know, trying to get back in the cockpit and fly and so on and so forth. Uh, I left hospital after almost six months still in the wheelchair. And it was probably at that nine months to a year that we started to see kind of opportunities to kind of get around a little bit more independently. And it's been something that you have to kind of retrain your body. You know, there are a lot of things I don't have left. So I can't feel my feet. I can't feel the backs of my legs or where I sit. I have no calf muscles, no glute muscles, really very little, if not no strength and control in my feet. I can't push my toes forward. I walk around on my heels, uh, my bladder and all the internal systems, they're all gone. So there was a lot of adjusting and and all that to a lifelong disability for sure. But if you ask my mates, you know, here or in Australia, like a lot of people don't really understand what's wrong. They, you look like you've fallen over after a big night on the town and, and hurt your ankle or broken your ankle. And so I'm pretty lucky in what I did get back, but it did take, yeah, pushing towards that year was about, we started to plateau off. And then now I've just found a way to kind of refine how you operate every day with the limitations and that's the best you can do. Yeah. Were you nervous at all to get back in the cockpit? 
I actually ended up getting back in the cock before I left hospital. I took myself out of hospital on weekend leave. And really? I, I told this story at an event uh, during dinner after the keynote and the lady looked at me. She said, why is that not in your keynote? And I said, <laughs> no, I just probably didn't see it as a big deal. But it was the first time they ever let me out of hospital. I took weekend leave. I caught a cab to the local train station and I, I took a train two hours north. Now I'm in a wheelchair with a bag on my knees and crutches between my legs and I remember my mom and dad, they would have taken me, but I was so stubborn that I wanted to do it myself. And I I went two hours north, got in an airplane. They lifted me out of the wheelchair, put me in the airplane. They took me flying again as a passenger. And that was really hard. And it still is hard. I mean, I'm back flying fixed wing airplanes. I had never flown a helicopter, but I did retrain as a commercial helicopter pilot as an incomplete paraplegic. And so I've managed to kind of continue my aviation, you know, although there's a lot of limitations in the fixed wing airplane world, but managed to continue the flying component of my life. And there are days where it's still really hard, but for the most part, you have to go back and be logical. You have to understand what happened on the day, the likelihood of that ever happening again. And you have to kind of come to terms with with aviation from a, a different set of eyes that it is safe. It is incredible. It is part of who I am and uh, to be back up there is is what ultimately was the end goal and, and we we made it happen. So I love that. Well, tell, tell us about your book, Born to Fly, because you said you wrote that right after <laughs> you completed the world round trip, right? Oh, yeah. That's got plenty of spelling mistakes in it, that book. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, um, there was a time when my nan could tell you every page number of every spelling mistake in the whole book, but we... Uh, <laughs> We came to America and we we had an editor go through it and we uh, republished it a second time. So we do have a book called Born to Fly. Uh, it is not the story of the accident. It is the story of the round-the-world flight. It was published right. prior to the accident. Uh, so I'm sure there's probably another book there one day when I can <laughs> uh, work on my spelling and, and sit down and do it all over again. But, you know, they have um, programs for that now. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it'll be sponsored by Grammarly is, is what it will be. But um, <laughs> no, it it's a great very simple book. I'm a pretty simple bloke. It is written in the way that I speak. And it is a a recount, the very best recount that I could give of the round the world flight. Not just the 70 days of flying around the world, but more importantly, the lead up to it and the background and and all that good stuff. And it's been received by everyone, young kids through to uh, the elderly and everyone in between. And it's been through schools and it's done all sorts of different stuff. And we do, it is available. So you can grab it on Amazon or you can uh, reach out to us through the website and we can scribble in one and, and send it your way. And, and what's your uh, website for us? It's ryancampbell.co. Uh, so www, it's actually ryancampbellspeaking.co. Uh, that's terrible. Uh, no, it's ryancampbell.co. That's how it is. It's yeah, ryancampbell.co. That's how I first stopped you. <laughs> <laughs> and, all, and all the socials are Ryan Campbell speaking. So there you go. So you can jump on LinkedIn or Instagram, reach out to us at Ryan Campbell speaking or jump on the website, ryancampbell.co. I get confused. Uh, everyone thinks it's .com. I always tell people we can't afford the M yet. So we're working on the M. <laughs> But as of now, it's .co. So jump on there, reach out by all means. Uh, We'd love to help. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us. Um, Your story is absolutely incredible and so impactful to people. Uh, Love that you're sharing it. What what else are you doing these days? I know you speak a lot. Is there anything else going on? You sound like you were uh, pretty busy when we first hopped on today. (laughs) Well, I'm still... uh, typical 28-year-old guy. You know, we I get married to a Tennessee girl at the end of this year. We just come back from Australia. First time seeing uh, family since COVID hit. We, gosh, this, you know, we're trying to buy our first home. We're just living that life of a, a normal kind of young couple. But at the same time, the reason I'm here in the US is is my full-time role as a speaker. And, and that's my my driving force and my motivator and my passion now is to to jump on stages in small groups to massive conferences and and share a real story that takes people on a high to a low to, you know, share the outcome of that incredibly unique opportunity to compare a high and a low. And, you know, I think what we, you know, the turbulence stuff mindset and this whole other conversation about uh, something called what's your pink Cadillac is our driving force right now. So that's what we're here to do. Well, and I can't let you leave if without telling us a little bit about the pink Cadillac. We don't need to get too much into it, but we you can't just leave it dangling out there. We we got to know. I saw pictures of this thing, and it just it looks incredible. 
Look, long story short, I'm a typical Aussie. I moved to America. I did all the touristy things. I traveled to Memphis, uh, went to Graceland, the home of Elvis. And uh, like any good US uh, tourist attraction, you can't get out of the facility unless you go through the gift shop. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> I bought myself a model pink Cadillac for $30 and decided that one day when I was old, I would own the real thing. And uh, six months later, scrolling through Facebook, like we all do mindlessly, I saw something for sale. I drove seven hours and I bought a real 1960 pink Cadillac. Uh, her name is Flo. It is the most <laughs> ridiculous car you've ever seen in your life. It is massive, but it is now actually something that's kind of evolved into one of our keynote topics. And it's asking individuals and organizations and teams this this really important question. What's your pink Cadillac? What's the one thing you do for you that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but makes you smile like a kid? And it's evolved into a work-life balance conversation where we're kind of pushing this idea that like you can work on your resilience and you can, you know, kind of like self-development every day. Like you can make yourself the very best version of yourself. But if you don't stop every now and then and step back from the desk, regardless of how much work is on it and take a little time for yourself. And we like to say, go and do something that, you know, may not be logical, you know, may not be financially sensible, but it makes you smile like a kid. Once you do that, you start to show up better in all areas of your life. And it's a resilience building tool that is often overlooked in this busy pandemic wild world we live in. So we use a big old pink Cadillac uh, to make people go and have a little bit of fun. So I love it. I absolutely love it. You got to have some fun in your life. Otherwise, what's the point, right? <laughs> well, <Exactly. laughs> Ryan, thank you so much for coming on, for dropping all the truth bombs, for sharing your story and best of luck with the marriage, the house and kind of this brand new Tennessee life you've got going on. I appreciate it. It's great to meet you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.